This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to today's podcast on NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This is the second podcast in World Beyond War's new podcast series. My name is Greta Zaro, and I'm World Beyond War's organizing director. I'm excited to host today's podcast. World Beyond War is a grassroots global network of volunteers, activists, and allied organizations advocating for the abolition of war and its replacement with an alternative global security system based on peace and demilitarization. These podcasts are available for free because of the generous support of our donors around the world. Our work is funded by small dollar, dollar donations from individuals who give as little as $5 a month. And you can help keep these podcasts going by donating at worldbeyondward.org slash donate. Okay, so I'd like to introduce our guest today. First, we have Mark Elliott Stein. He is a coordinating committee member of World Beyond War and our tech guru that helps us run our website and all things technological. Um, Mark has founded this podcast series. He is based in New York City, and he has been a web developer since the 1990s. And over the years, he has built websites for Bob Dylan, Pearl Jam, Words Without Borders, and much more. Mark says, I'm a latecomer to political activism. It was the Iraq War and the atrocities that followed that woke me up. I've been exploring various tough topics on a website that I launched in 2015 called pacifism21.org. Speaking out against war can feel like shouting into a void. I love that sentence, Mark. So I was thrilled to come to my World Beyond War conference, No War 2017, and meet other people who have been active for this cause for a long time. Welcome, Mark. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. Our next guest is Shabir Laka. Shabir is an officer of the Stop the War Coalition in the UK, and he was one of the organizers of the demonstration against Donald Trump when he visited London in 2018. Shabir is also a People's Assembly Against Austerity and Palestine Solidarity Activist, and a member and regular writer for Counterfire. Welcome, Shabir. Thank you for having me. And our last guest today is Liz Remerswall hughes Liz is a coordinating committee member of World Beyond War and the New Zealand Chapter Coordinator. Liz is a journalist, environmental activist, and a former politician having served for six years on her uh, regional council in her area. The daughter and granddaughter of soldiers who fought other people's wars in far-flung places, she never got over war stupidity, and instead she became a pacifist. Liz is an active Quaker and formerly the co-vice president of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom in New Zealand. Liz lives with her husband on the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand. Welcome, Liz. Good morning. So today's podcast is all about NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. What is NATO and why are we talking about it? Well, NATO was founded in 1949. It is an intergovernmental military alliance between 29 North American and European countries. NATO now accounts for three quarters of all military spending and weapons dealing on the globe. NATO has repeatedly violated international law and bombed numerous countries, including Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kosovo, Serbia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Libya. 
NATO is coming to Washington, D.C. this April 4 to celebrate its 70th anniversary. And World Beyond War is a leading member of an international coalition that is organizing a peace, peace festival this April 3 and 4 in Washington, D.C. to unwelcome the arrival of the largest military alliance in the world. So today, let's talk about NATO and why we're opposing its arrival in Washington, D.C. So let's get started with a question for everyone, which is simply, why do you think protesting NATO is important? Mark, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So at World Beyond War, we have been involved in the discussions of what we should do about the fact that NATO is having their 70th anniversary celebration in Washington, D.C. And, and the reason that this got um, kicked off is that they had announced that they would be having some type of celebration of NATO. So it was actually, as you said, Greta, to unwelcome them. NATO seems to think that they should be celebrating themselves and celebrating the existence of what, what you just described as three quarters of, the of all military spending in the world. That's just an incredible statistic. So I think the first important thing that we're doing is calling attention to the fact that there is a single military alliance that is responsible for three quarters of the spending and to call attention to it. As I know we're going to be discussing here, there are so many controversies involving um, what NATO is, what their mission is, um, and so many misunderstandings and so many different angles from, from which to view what NATO does. So I think, I think the importance of the protest is to open up the discussion. I don't think there are easy answers here. I don't think any of us think there are easy answers here, but we, we need that discussion of what, what NATO's presence in the world is, what their influence on the world is, and we need to talk about them more. And Shabir, why do you think protesting NATO is important? And I think the second part of that question is, have you participated in protests against NATO in the past? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I completely agree with uh, what Mark has just said. Um, and yeah, I have protested against uh, NATO. Uh, for the last two years, I've, I've gone to uh, Brussels, where they hold their summit every year. Uh, to demonstrate against them there. And this year they will be coming to London in December uh, and we're planning to, to protest um, then when they, when they do. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's incredibly important to raise the issues of what NATO actually stands for, what, it, what it's doing, what its role is, um, and, you know, to get people talking about it and thinking about it. And I think protest is an important way of doing that. Um, not least because it shows visible opposition uh, on the streets and allows people to organize collectively and, and as a grassroots movement uh, against it. So, I mean, yeah, we've had a, a relatively successful anti-war movement uh, in Britain. Uh, its peak was probably in the 80s against the, as part of the anti-nuclear um, weapons movement, uh, but also since the, the war on terror and, and the interventions in the Middle East, and so this, this very much fits in as part of that. So in terms of what our protests are going to look like in Washington, D.C., there's actually a lot of events happening that listeners might be aware of. If you go to no2nato.org, you can view the full schedule of events. But there are things starting on March 30th, and then it goes every single day until April 4. And April 4 is the day that NATO is scheduled to have its big meeting and 70th anniversary celebration in D.C. 
But in between that time, there are nonviolent demonstrations in the streets with um, speakers and music. And then there's a counter summit, which is going to be a day long of workshops and panels from knowledgeable speakers from around the world talking about NATO's negative impacts. And then World Beyond War has been spearheading what we're calling the Peace Fest, which is a festival on April 3rd, also in Washington, D.C., where we will have speakers. We'll also have comedian activist Lee Camp bringing some biting comedic relief to this. And we'll have live music as well as art making and nonviolent protest training in preparation for the big demonstration the next day. So that's kind of what it's going to look like in D.C. And I'm wondering, Shabir, if you could tell us what some of the protests or activities have looked like in the past, as well as what kind of action you're planning for NATO's arrival in London. Yeah, so uh, the last couple of years when I've gone to Brussels, um, the way they've done it is to have uh, a big march on the evening before the summit. Uh, with people coming in from across Europe uh, to march through the streets of Brussels and oppose NATO, um, and then coinciding with the actual summit, there is a counter summit where anti-war activists, um, you know, from from all across Europe, come together to discuss what's happening in our respective countries, share solidarity, uh, and to to discuss how we can work together uh, to oppose war and militarism and and raise the question of NATO. Um, yeah, and last year when we organized the demonstration against Donald Trump and, and generally when, when we have anti-war demonstrations, uh, we, you know, we call them as, as national demonstrations. We get groups from around the country uh, organizing public meetings in advance, uh, raising the issues, having the discussions and, and making the arguments as to why it's important to, to join the demonstration and, and, uh, and understand what's going on and then bring people in, uh, you know, by coaches and, and trains to the capital of the city to have a big demonstration, a big show of opposition. Um, I, I think what you described as what you're planning in Washington sounds quite similar to what we do and it sounds very good. What would you say is your message when you're trying to attract people to this event and then at the event itself, what is your, your key message about why, why you're doing all of this? Um, so I think, I mean, I, I mean, I guess it depends on, on the political moment, but I think it's important to try and relate to people um, and to have a kind of main uh, slogan or banner which people can get behind, which, you know, which tells people that even if we disagree on other political uh, um, positions, you know, something we can agree on is that uh, war is bad, uh, X, Y, Z. So particularly in the UK, since... Uh, 2010, we've had a conservative government pushing uh, a, a very harsh austerity regime, uh, you know, saying that we don't have enough money to spend on our public services and healthcare, etc., while spending millions uh, on war and military spending. And so one of the key arguments we've been making since then has to, to say, you know, cut war, not welfare, uh, and, you know, bringing people's attention to the fact that uh, our government is, is, is saying that they don't have the money, but look at what they're doing. Uh, so I think, yeah, having kind of messaging which relates to, to the moment and, and to where people are at is important. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up the issue of military spending. That's something that we really focus on at World Beyond War. And as I said in the intro, NATO, the military alliance, including the United States, all combined, all the countries as part of this alliance, accounts for three quarters of all military spending on the globe. And according to the data, 
total global military spending on an annual basis is $2 trillion a year. Half of that is the United States at $1 trillion a year. And as you were saying, and just imagine all of the different social and ecological needs that we could um, mitigate if we use that money on, on other things in the military. Um, at World Beyond War, we have billboards like to put attention to the fact that just 3% of U.S. military spending could end global hunger, according to U.N. estimates of, of what it would take to end world hunger. Um, now, I do want to transition to hear from Liz about why you think protesting NATO is important, and especially coming from New Zealand, which I think people perceive as a relatively peaceful country. Um, why would someone like you get involved in, in anti-war work and in protesting NATO? Well, we are a peaceful country um, down in New Zealand where we're, we're pretty remote. We're three hours flight from Australia. And, um, you know, if we get, we get on south, we next country is Antarctica. But we have had a, a role in the past, um, as I mentioned, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, about supporting other people's wars. And, of course, we can't forget that when, um, when our own country here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, was first colonised, there, there was, through, um, through weapons, there was actually New Zealand wars, and there was, you know, we have our own history to deal with as far as how the land was, was taken from the, um, from the Māori people, which we're addressing through um, treaty address, um, the treaty breaches of our treaty being addressed and and um, tribes being paid for those transgressions but um as a as a um a, I, th I think that deep within people there is a desire for peace and and there's a knowledge now too i think that we need to address conflict in better ways rather than through war and and we have we have the means and we have the skill and it's very aspirational. It's very idealistic, but there's also academic research, which shows that it is far more effective to deal with conflict in a nonviolent way, as opposed to um, using violence. And there's an American professor, Dr. Erica Chenoweth, who's documented um, all around the world um, examples of how this is so. So, so I think there is really, for me, it's like a. Um, for me, it's like a sort of a duty or a calling, to try and explore and to tr tr try and promote the message of nonviolence and dealing with con conflict. And then, as you've already mentioned, you know the incredible budgets that we put towards war and military, which is which are increasing all over the place and including here in our own country, sadly. We don't have a huge budget for military, but, but it's really based on our alliances with other countries. And um, while we have made independent stands in the past, for example, against, um, against nuclear weapons, and in the 80s, we, New Zealand stood up to US and said we wouldn't have any, um, any nuclear carrying ships in our ports. We still have strong alliances with US, UK, Canada, Australia. It's called the Five Eyes Network. We host 
um, spy bases on our land. We pay for them. Um, the information contributes to, um, to military intelligence and so on. And um, we also send troops to um, Iraq and Afghanistan. And we are currently being courted by NATO to provide more support, military support. So I think it's something here in, in our country that we, we're not super aware of. It's, you know, most people don't think about NATO in their daily life. But we do, we are under um, challenges with our economy. Like we haven't recently, there have been not doctors and nurses on strike for better conditions and so on. There are families who are struggling. I think people very much relate to the idea of, of, our, of our government spending and what we want our money to go to. And I think um, people agree that we should be putting that money towards health, education, housing, climate change action sustainability, all of the, the good things, rather than boosting a, a military economy and sending our, our, our troops to, to fight on other places um, for wars that are really sometimes not even legal. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean when you say that NATO is currently courting New Zealand? Well, our, our our, our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern uh, visited um, the NATO headquarters in January in Brussels, met with the Secretary General, and um, and I was just just reading up yesterday that um, they have he he actually asked her to um, I think it was to send more troops to Iraq. And, and her response was she would uh, look into it. And I'm not sure what the update of that is, but in other words, we're being pressurized more. And, and the, the other side of that is that um, these alliances that we have with other countries, they're all about trade as well. You know, we are a country that grows produce and we, we export a lot overseas. It's um, traditionally, it's a big part of our of our economy was sending meat and wool in the olden days it was back to the UK and then when the common market came into being um, we had to you know that no longer was the case so we had to develop markets in other parts of the world and in particular China um, China's you know we're very close to Asia here and um, China and Asia are a big part of our um, of our economy, particularly tourism. Um, but just as an aside, you know, what's happening with, with uh, who are I and the, um, the 5G rollout and the problems that, that has been happening with that, that has, has an impact on us because as an ally or as a partner, um, you know, where there has been pressure from the US and Australia, I think, to, um, you know, to pull, to pull out of um, agreements with Huawei. And that's having repercussions on our relationship with China and in particular, perhaps trade agreements. So it's, it's kind of very complex and far reaching, but, um, you know, very important. And um, of course, there's a lot that goes under the radar that we don't know. There's a lot of things, discussions that happen, happen in secret or or whatever but um 
you know, everything has, um, is related in a way. Okay, um, I want to move on to our second question and we'll go around again and get everyone's opinion on this one. So the question is, how would you describe the general perception of NATO and beyond NATO of the global sort of American military influence? How would you describe that perception in your region, whether it's in the United States or in the UK or in New Zealand? What do people generally think of, of NATO and, and the military industrial complex led by the US? Uh, Mark, do you want to kick us off? This is a pretty major question because here in the USA, I would say NATO's image is, you know, rainbows and candy and unicorns. Everybody that I, I, I should not generalize and say everybody, but I, I put a lot of effort into trying to understand not just what other activists think, but what the average person on the street thinks. And I would say in the United States, there is a general perception that NATO is in a extraordinarily benevolent and helpful positive force in the world. Um, if, if I could just generalize, I would say at least three quarters of the people I, I would ask this question to would have that answer, that NATO is a very positive force in the world. Some would probably go so far as to say that NATO is what keeps the world free. Um, now, try saying that in a group of anti-war activists and we'll get a very different reaction. But what, what most people think does impact the decisions that our governments make. And I think it's very important to address the fact that what we are protesting is something that, in my perception, is very popular in the United States. And um, I also want to mention... The, um, one of the founders of World Beyond War is David Swanson, who recently wrote a book called American Exceptionalism, or actually it was called Curing Exceptionalism. Uh, and um, I think what, what I'm describing is the basic problem that here on the North American continent, um, most Americans are of the mistaken opinion that the entire world views their government as very benevolent and very helpful and a positive force for freedom and democracy. So that's a, you know, it, it, there's a lot of dissonance here between what I think most of us believe to be true here on, on this um, podcast episode and what the people we, we may meet on the street here in the United States think. I would agree with that. Speaking also as someone in the United States, I do come across a lot of pushback when I'm organizing anti-NATO events and people who, you know, describe themselves as peace activists or anti-war activists and say to me, you know, how could you possibly be organizing against NATO? NATO is a peacekeeping organization. I, I see people yep. say that a lot. Yep. And I used to back and talk about, you know, starting with Yugoslavia, the, the military intervention that they did and the bombing that killed thousands of people. But I'm curious, Mark, as to what you say to people when you're when you're talking on Facebook or other mediums that you're using and you get that kind of pushback. <laughs> well, if you um, check my Facebook, you'd see I say a whole lot, <laughs> sometimes more than my friends want to hear me say. I'm, I'm pretty vocal about this um, and on Twitter as well. Um, I, as you can see, I'm, I am somewhat passionate about about trying to address this um, 
this lack of a mutual understanding of where we are in the world right now. I would say specifically about NATO, I would point out that before the fall of the Soviet Union, NATO did have a different purpose in the world. And at least we could separate the discussion of whether or not NATO is a force for freedom into um, whether or not that was true before the fall of the Soviet Union and the so-called Iron Curtain and after. Now, in fact, I don't want to simplify it and say that the, the answer is simple in either case. Um, but I do think that once the, I mean, uh, just to fill in the, the, the gaps here in case anybody's not familiar with the history here, obviously the context in which NATO was founded was that after World War II, the um, Axis powers in Europe, which were between um, the English-USA alliance and the, the Russia alliance, that the Axis powers collapsed Russia and um, England, France, UK, etc., moved in and basically um, forced every European country to side with one or the other. NATO was the the Western side, and the so-called Warsaw Pact um, was the Soviet equivalent of NATO. Once once the Soviet Union fell and and um, became a, a bunch of different nations the Warsaw Pact ceased to exist, therefore NATO's opposite ceased to exist. Some believed at that point that NATO should cease to exist. Instead, um, NATO seemed to transform into something that we're not exactly sure what it is, certainly a force for um, global, global capitalism, and that brings up a whole bunch of other connotations. Um, so really, to me, when we're discussing NATO, we're discussing the state of the world, the, the state of global policy and international relationships as a whole. You know, arguably, NATO is, is more powerful than the United Nations. Um, the United Nations certainly doesn't have as big a budget. So uh, very different types of organizations. So. I would say that, you know, to, to bring it back to your original question, the perceptions of what NATO is, is such an important topic, but it is, it is so hard to, to nail down exactly what NATO is and what they represent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for providing our listeners with some of that context. And I bet those people on Facebook talking with you did not expect that they would start to be having a conversation about <laughs> capitalism and the world structure as it is today. Yep. Uh, Shabir, can you chime in on how people in the UK perceive NATO and the military industrial complex as a whole? And, you know, how easy or hard it is for you to engage people with the anti-NATO protests that you're watching? Um, yeah, so I think in terms of NATO, I would, I would bet that the average person here in Britain uh, doesn't know what it is. Um, uh, you know, at all, really. But from from what they would have heard about in the media, it will probably be something very positive. Uh, you know, similar to what you said, Mark, uh, some kind of peacekeeping force. Um, but I think what might have damaged this credibility is the Libya intervention, because David Cameron, uh, who was the prime minister in 2011, obviously led a big charge for making the case for intervention in Libya. A lot of organizing 
uh, around it and there was a huge uh, movement against it. Um, but ultimately, uh, parliamentarians supported David Cameron in that mission. But it was very quickly uh, debunked for what it was, uh, you know, a, a, a mission for regime change in Libya with, without any regard for the disastrous consequences uh, of the, the mass bombing campaign that it had. Uh, and we see the situation in Libya now today where there is literally a human slave trade again, where there is uh, two or three competing governments, which does occasionally make it to our uh, you know, media headlines, engaged somewhat, will have some idea uh, that NATO's role might not be positive. Um, but I think generally speaking, in terms of of Britain's uh, military involvement in the world and, and pushing for war, I think that the impact of the anti-war movement uh, since 2003 has created an atmosphere of skepticism when our government talks about uh, British involvement abroad. Um, and we can see that in, in 2013 when, when David Cameron wanted to intervene in Syria, um, he was stopped and there was a, a mass protest movement again. Uh, MPs were scared to support David Cameron uh, again after Libya as well. Uh, so I think, I think there is an impact in terms of people's general perceptions uh, against uh, our country having some kind of positive role. Uh, but yeah, but it is a tough argument and I think the anti-war movement does have its work cut out for us. Uh, last year, when Donald Trump came over, it was it was a massive coalition of, of organizations across the board organizing that demonstration. So there were uh, key arguments around uh, racism, homophobia, sexism, climate change denial, uh, and so on. But we made sure to make sure that we made sure that the anti-war argument was very clear. Uh, and to talk about Donald Trump's role and Theresa May's appeasement of his role. Um, so I think, I think uh, yeah, what people understand in, in terms of uh, British arms sales to countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, Britain's indefinite war basically in, in Afghanistan uh, is slowly changing. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up the situation in Libya. We had a NOTA NATO webinar last week and one of our panelists was Giovanni Reyes who was deployed with the U.S. Army in the Balkans in the 1990s during NATO's first military intervention. And Giovanni talked about the fact that that really became a template, that after that bombing in Yugoslavia, NATO and the U.S. and its allies used that as a template for other interventions, as you say, other uh, regime, regime change wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, mm. Libya, and all yeah, the time. Liz, do you want to chime in and give your perspective on this, of how people in New Zealand perceive NATO and the U.S. military alliance? Yeah, I, I resonate with what the others have been saying. Um, however, things are sort of changing somewhat. There have been several situations, for example, in Afghanistan, where civilians have been killed and wounded by our troops in, in conjunction with... Um, U.S. missions, and um, then there's currently a, um, a legal case that has been taken by some Afghan civilians um, asking for a, I think it's a, a judicial review from the New Zealand government about what actually happened. And as well as that, um, there 
there is an inquiry that is going on into um, an incident in Afghan, Afghanistan where the same incident actually where these, these for example, a three-year-old girl was killed. Um, and so there's an inquiry that's going on. Um, so a couple of journalists actually wrote a book about, about um, our involvement in Afghanistan and also some TV reporters went over and did some work over there. And what's happening is that civilians are, are being hurt, killed and hurt. And that is something really that people intrinsically are not happy with. We don't want to see three-year-old, I mean, of course, children and women and so on always are also always casualties of war. But um, in the past, it was, it was much more, um, you know, armies versus armies. Whereas these days, um, the majority of the casualties of war are civilians. And so I think um, this is something that is really making people think. And the fact that we have a government inquiry, um, even though, um, unfortunately, it's, it's um, mostly done in secret. Um, now, now there's a campaign to have it open to the public and transparent. But, um, you know, why the need for transparency, etc.? You know, there's the saying, the first casualty of war is the truth. And, um, you know, if people really knew what was going on, I, I, I think there would be a lot less support. And so it's really an ongoing mission to keep the, the thing going, to, to, to educate people and, um, you know, to uphold our values. So we talked about how NATO and the U.S. and military industrial complex in general is this controversial thing that we're struggling against and, as we're all saying, raising awareness about and sort of correcting the record and going against this mainstream dialogue. And so this is a question for all of you is why, why do you keep doing this work? It's, it's very challenging work. It, you know, results are often extremely slow, if any. What keeps you motivated or you know why why do you think it is so important to be taking this somewhat controversial stance against nato and against the military um mark we'll start with you again great question um and a, a pretty deep question that even beginning to answer that brings up so many thoughts um first i i want to mention that for me when i protest nato and when i oppose nato I am thinking of NATO as sort of a symbol for the um, the world's military addiction, and you know, so I uh, I do not necessarily put a laser focus on NATO itself as the as the only evil that we're fighting against, and that would be that that would not. I I think most people would feel the same way. And, in fact, also, it's worth mentioning that when we say NATO accounts for three quarters of, of military spending, what we mean is that the nations that make up NATO account for that. And in many cases, these nations are involved in activities that do not involve NATO. For instance, I, I'm very upset about what's been going on in Venezuela, which is to me very much like a um, NATO style US imperialism U.S. empire um, operation. However, this is not NATO because this is South America. So for me, I like to rise above the 
the specifics and look to the big picture, which is that if the world does not discover a, a way to coexist in peace, we're doomed and, and time is running out and that it is super urgent. I'm a parent. I want my children to have children and, you know, I want the world to continue. And I don't think I'm saying anything here that, that most people wouldn't say, but for me, I, I see the opposition to NATO as the opposition to the, the dominant um, pro-militarist narrative in the world right now, which, which is doing great harm. And so to answer your, the more maybe personal side of your question, God, I, can, I don't even know how to begin answering. I, um, I, be, I became involved, as, as you mentioned, Greta, when you were introducing us, um, most of my adult life, I was not very politically involved. And um, the more attention I started paying, the more time I had to read about it, the more I learned, the more I became convinced that we really do have an opportunity for positive change. And we got it. we the world, we got to get our act together. Yeah. And following up on your point about South and Central America, it is interesting. I've been reading that NATO is courting Colombia to join <laughs> as a member. Alliance, yeah. which of course is totally abandoning its name of being the North Atlantic Alliance. <laughs> yeah, how are they North Atlantic? Wow. Shabir, what what keeps you going, and what why do you think it's worth it to be protest NATO? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I echo what what Mark said um, in that I think NATO and and generally the you know the question of of war and militarism is very much central. Um, to what I think is is wrong in the world uh, in all sorts of, of, of avenues. And I think that's what keeps me going is that I think in, in terms of trying to fight for a better, more equal, more just uh, society, we have to tackle uh, this question. Um, I mean, uh, you look at, for example, uh, you know, like we've already talked about the uh, weapon sales and, and, and spending on, on the military, um, you know, again, I, we're spending 200 billion uh, pounds on replacing Trident, our nuclear weapon system. We're spending 2% of our GDP um, on, on defense as per NATO uh, uh, stipulations. Um, and this is at a time when there's no money for our national health service, which is crumbling. There's no money for our schools, um, which we're seeing, you know, schools are having to close early. Parents are having to set up payments to the schools to help keep them going. Uh, we've seen homelessness rise at exponential rates, people having to use food banks, all these things, uh, you know, and, and especially in Britain, which is, I think, the fifth richest country in the world, um, is ridiculous. And I think, you know, that question of, of where our priorities are, where our money is going, is very important. Uh, when we look at the arms industry's role in our economy, uh, and the, the grotesque amount of subsidies that arms uh, that the arms manufacturers receive, um, and and how that relates to the to the finance industry, how that relates to university students being given graduate schemes in these in these companies, so that their skills are not being used to advance humanity, but rather to destroy it. Um, and uh, you know, I think importantly also on, on, in the question of racism, because particularly in Britain. The most dominant force, form of racism right now is Islamophobia, um, and it's intrinsically linked to the rhetoric our government has used since it began the war on terror uh, to justify its invasions of, of countries in the Middle East. Um, and since 2015, for why we shouldn't be accepting 
refugees, uh, which again, surprise, surprise, NATO is playing a role in the Mediterranean and Aegean seas to stop, uh, you know, vulnerable people uh, from being able to, to get to safety. So I think, you know, the, the question of war and militarism and the military-industrial complex is central to, to everything. And I think if, if anyone wants to fight for a better world, uh, then it has to it has to be tackled, but whether it's easy or not. Yeah, we totally agree with you at World Beyond War. That's really central to our messaging is tying it back to those larger issues that you just mentioned, and you know, recognizing that war is this sort of underpinning issue that is causing the refugee crisis and the climate crisis and racism and bigotry, and you know, having these reverberating effects. Um, you know, and causing the militarization of the police back at home. So all of these multifaceted yeah. and ecological impacts are, are tied to war. Liz, I feel like I have the perception that maybe it's a little bit different for you because you're in New Zealand and New Zealand is not as active or as, you know, as the U.S. is. So do you, do you feel like it's a little bit easier as a, as a peace activist or as an anti-NATO activist? Or do you also, you know, uh, feel this pushback and, and how do you kind of push through that and keep going? Yeah, well, um, I guess we're not right in the forefront of everything. And um, having visited the United States um, last year and sort of experienced firsthand the tension and the pressure that uh, the people are under because of, you know, the regime that you have there, you know, we don't kind of have that on a daily basis and also the tensions, you know, that might be in the UK, etc. Just first of all, want to just mention something in uh, response to what you said, Shabir, about fight for a better world. Um, I, try and, I try and have my terminology to take that kind of warlike words out of it and like to, to create a better world or to work for to, to um, you know, because building peace, for me, it's about from the per, a personal basis, you know, through society, through relationships, um, as well as globally, so globally. So it's all in harmony. And um, you mentioned before about what the, you know, why, what motivates me to be, and I, and I mentioned, you mentioned in the introduction about being the product of soldiers you know, my father uh, was in Egypt and Italy during the Second World War. And when he was a newborn, his father went off to, to, to fight at Gallipoli um, and, uh, you know, supporting the British. It was, it was and, and prior to that, that he, he also fought also for the British in, in South Africa. Um, and there's a whole lot of consequences, uh, you know, for for what happens after people return to war. They're very, very often damaged. And even just this last week in New Zealand, one of uh, the, the big New Zealand war heroes, he's got a Victoria Cross, and he came out and said, look, um, you know, I've been lauded for this, but the day I left the army, I was left with nothing, no help. I've suffer, I suffer from PTSD, I, you know, I always will. And there's been not a not a bit of help towards my my medical condition, and he and he came out and and to their credit, the minister of defence did say, who was also an ex army man, oh you know I'll support you, I'll support you, let's see what we can do. But 
the tolls of war are just so many. It's not just financial. It's not just on, on families. Um, it's on a whole society. It's on the way we, we think. It's on the effects of, you know, of trauma on people. My, my in-laws um, grew up during the wartime in Holland. And, um, you know, there are just deep, deep wounds that, that, that people experience through, through war. It's, um, for me, it's to be avoided at all costs. And, and the great benefit of being, um, uh, you know, a peace activist is, is that I, you know, I get to talk to people like you guys and hang out with you and, and discuss the things that we really really believe in and um of course i've got children too and you know i'd hate for my children to go off and, and fight in a war anywhere else or you know so i i just can't see it i mean but it's, the myth is about the peacekeeping and you know that's that's it's it is it's very it's very difficult to challenge um these deep held beliefs because that's what we're told and after all the military and so on has a very massive PR department, and um, us peace activists, we we struggle to get by, don't we, Greta and Mark? Sure do. <laughs> yes, good point. And that really gets at the fact that one of our strategies at World Beyond War and many other groups too is the fact that we have to change the culture itself beyond actually demilitarizing, but then really getting at the the culture and changing it to what we call the culture of peace. Yep. Yes, and building, you know, building a peace economy. And I mean, that's, you know, with, with the, at World Beyond War, we work with lots of different other peace organizations, such as Code Pink, um, a wonderful organization, fantastic women. And, um, you know, they've got a whole, um, a whole thing on building um, economies, peace economies, just as World Beyond War has, has a strand on divesting from weapons, so so I mean, like even people who aren't aren't interested in going out of the streets or whatever, they can actually look at their finances and they can and look at their investments, or they can they can actually lobby, uh, you know, public funds and make sure that they're not um, invested in anything to do with production of weapons. Yeah, thank you for plugging that very important action step. Um, we have only about five or ten minutes left, and I want to get to a sticky question on Russia, uh, which especially in the United States, Russia is really painted as the big bad enemy in the mainstream media. So in violation of a promise that it made, NATO has actually expanded eastward right up to the border of Russia and installed missiles at that border. And while the U.S. is increasing its annual military spending, Russia has actually been reducing its military spending each year. U.S. annual increases have actually sometimes exceeded the entirety of Russia's military budget. So that's the scale we're talking about. And while the United States has troops in 175 countries around the world, Russia has troops in only three countries. And time and time again, when different agencies like Gallup and Pew poll populations around the world and they ask people, what is the greatest threat in the world? The United States is the top answer that people see as the greatest threat to peace on Earth. And Russia actually asked to join NATO, and it was rejected. And meanwhile, 
versus all of this, you have the New York Times saying that NATO is deterring Russian aggression. So how do you respond? And I know this is a tricky question, but how do you respond to people saying that Russia is an enemy and that we need NATO to keep it in check? So first, I want to make sure what, what I'm about to say, I am speaking for myself. And, and this is something that at World Beyond War, we have great conversations within our um, coordinating committee. We have a bunch of very um, lively and, and opinionated people with different opinions. And um, this is something that we go back and forth about. So what I'm describing, what I'm going to say right now is what I personally think. Um, I am very concerned about the rise of so-called strongman authoritarianism around the world. And I think Donald Trump is an example of this. And I also think that uh, Vladimir Putin is an example of this. And this does cause me to have some concerns about an event or a rally that is focused exclusively on NATO, because while I do believe NATO and the Western alliance is probably doing a lot of very questionable things with regard to Russia, I also do not embrace the Russian side of this. And that puts me at a sort of odd position. Um, I also want to, I want to qualify this by saying that I love the nation of Russia. Um, Russia is one of the, you know, pillars of world culture. Some of my very favorite writers are Russian writers. And, um, you know, it's a, it's an amazing society, but loving Russia does not mean loving what Vladimir Putin represents. So this actually puts me personally in a sometimes awkward position. There are many anti-war activists who um, w would go further than I would in terms of um, seeing Putin's presence in the world as, um, as I'm not sure if I should use the word benevolent, but um, who are not as concerned about um, this aspect of Putinism as I am. And, and again, that's why I, I think it's great to have conversations like this because I, I do know that there are many different perspectives and many different ways to see this, but that's how I see it. I am, I, I am concerned about all the corrupt um, authoritarian governments of the world, including the one I sadly find myself in here in the United States and, um, and Russia as well. And I'm, I'm looking for a, a different way than, than any of these nations provide. Yeah, I'll just quickly respond to that and Shabir, you can chime in. But I was just going to say that this question is not saying, you know, let's go support Putin or yay Putin. Um, the question is more about comparing the U.S. and NATO's military presence. Like I said, for example, 175 bases, military bases around the world that the U.S. has versus three that Russia has. Yes. It's more a comparison to show that Russia is not this big, bad military threat that, that we need NATO to oppose. It's not saying that we support, you know, Russian military. We don't. You know, at World Beyond War, speaking from World Beyond War's perspective, we want to end all military bases by all countries and, you know, reduce all military budgets. Um, so we're not saying yay to Russian military. We're just saying is it really the big threat that, that NATO is saying it is? Well, um, 
Definitely valid, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I do have to bring up here the, the topic of Ukraine, which is very divisive among um, anti-war activists, I think, because what the, the um, conflict between Russia and Ukraine over the Crimea has been something that many people are, are struggling to, to know how to interpret. And I'm one of those people. I don't know what to think about. When, when, when we see um, Ukraine and uh, when we see Ukraine split in two, and we, at least speaking for myself here in the United States, I'm very far from that part of the world. I don't know what to think. So I would say, though, that Ukraine and also Chechnya as well um, are two areas where there is a perception, and I, and I am not really in a position to, to know the facts behind the perception, that, that Russia has, has been making aggressive moves. And I'd love to know from the three of you, and, and in general, I'd love to know, is, is that perception correct or not? This is an area where I really don't know exactly what to believe. Yeah, Shabir, please jump in. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a, a bit of a tricky subject, but I think the key things uh, to remember in terms of, of our activism and our opinions of, of what's going on uh, is to identify uh, our government's role in the situation and, and to realize that as uh, activists in whatever country we're in, our greatest uh, area of impact is on our own country's policy. Uh, so, I mean, you know, when it comes, and, and we've seen this time and time again, that when uh, Britain wanted to invade Iraq, those of us who protested against it were told we supported Saddam Hussein. Uh, when we opposed the intervention in Libya, we were told we were Gaddafi supporters, or in Syria, uh, we're Assad or Putin apologists. And of course, we have to clarify that that isn't the case. Opposing intervention, which is going to make the situation worse, does not mean supporting the, the other side and, you know, Stop the War has maintained the position of opposing all intervention uh, in Syria and, and in other countries, uh, but we don't have an impact on getting Putin to pull out his troops and support in Syria. We have an impact on what our government is doing, which is playing a damaging role. Um, and in that context, I think we do need to recognize that our government, whether it's in the US or the UK, I, I'm not sure about New Zealand, but you know, our government repeatedly and consistently uses Russia as a bogeyman to support its uh, military exploits. Just a, a few weeks ago, our defense secretary was justifying why we need to massively expand uh, our army, both in mass and lethality, in his words, uh, to massively up our, in, uh, our spending on the military because of the Russian threat. Uh, and we've seen that same argument be used uh, against Jeremy Corbyn, the left-wing leader of the Labour Party. Um, you know, when there was the, the Skripal poisoning, Britain was quick to rush to condemning Russia as a state for organising it despite not having any evidence, etc., etc. And so this argument keeps coming up, and Russia is used as this bogeyman. And I think we need to recognise where our arguments can pl can play a role in countering that um, or going ahead with it. So, for example, when we protested against British uh, airstrikes in Syria, uh, the Foreign Secretary at the time, Boris Johnson, uh, publicly asked the Stop the War Coalition on media, uh, on the media, why we're not protesting outside the Russian embassy. And the simple answer to that is, if we protested outside the Russian embassy, our government would use that to say, 
look, people are saying we need to take action on Russia. This is why we need to you know, do X, Y, Z. And so we have to, to maintain that. And I think Ukraine is a tricky situation. Uh, and again, you know, I don't think anyone should apologize for uh, being apologist for, for Putin's actions or to say that what he's done is right uh, or to justify it. But again, being in the West, we need to recognize what role NATO has played in it exacerbating the tensions uh, in Eastern European countries in, you know, pushing uh, Russia um, in, in the direction that it has. Um, so, yeah, I hope that answers that a little bit. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Liz, do you want to jump in with any last thoughts as we wrap up on this? Yeah, just just briefly, uh, I would say that Putin is is portrayed as, as the devil in Western media. Um, it's not necessarily balanced reporting. I think, I think it would be really good if we could have a lot better journalism on this. And um, the points that you're raising, I think, are very important. I, I understand that Russia was had and and the US had been spent some time in the past negotiating you know nuclear free treaty which was uh, never completed and but I, I think that for example Gorbachev in particular was very desirous of um, getting rid of nuclear weapons and it's just never happened in fact they've gone increased um, the other point I wanted to make was that uh, Second World War I believe Russia lost 27 million civilians and, and military personnel. 27 million people is a huge loss to a country. And, um, yeah, it's, it, it, as everyone says, it's tricky. But I don't think that we're getting good journalism about the truth, about the situation with, with Russian foreign policy. Thank you, Shabir, Liz, and Mark, for sharing your thoughts today. And thank you to listeners for joining us on this podcast. I think that we could talk for another hour just on this topic alone, and that might be the plan for podcast number three. Mm -hmm. yep. um, so I'd like to thank you all again. And to our listeners, please go to no2nato.org to get tickets for the April 3 and 4 Peace Festival and Nonviolence demonstration in Washington, D.C. to unwelcome the arrival of NATO, the largest military alliance in the world. As I mentioned in the introduction, there are a series of events happening that week in D.C. from March 30th to April 4th, including protests and marches and music festivals and screen printing and nonviolence training and a counter-summit and everything in between. So again, go to no2nato.org to learn more. And there are also some groups organizing sister actions around the world in solidarity with Washington, D.C. So check out those or organize your own if there is one in your area. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you, too, Greta, and thanks, everybody. Thank you, Greta. Thank you. And lovely to talk to you, Mark and Shabia. All yes. the best. Great speaking to you all. Thanks.